This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On March 24, 1958, Elvis Presley officially accepted his draft into a team that this week's guest originally thought he was going to be a part of, following in his father's footsteps. Later in the year, a game occurred that made this week's guest open his eyes to a different type of team, which would be the NFL. What was that team that Elvis joined, you asked? Well, it was the U.S. Army. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you Come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is December 28th, 1958, in Yankee Stadium to witness what is often referred to as the greatest game ever played. Now by this time, Elvis Presley was already over across the sea in Germany as a member of the 1st Medium Tank Battalion. Now this is important because Elvis accepting his draft into the army and the greatest game ever played changed the perception and the way that Americans thought in at least a few different ways. This week's guest was in awe at watching his future teammate, legendary Johnny Unitas, take the Colts down the field in the first sudden death played in an NFL championship game. But that's just the beginning of what an article on NFL.com recently had dubbed as a Forrest Gump-like football career for this week's guest, Bill Curry. So I'll give you a quick little rundown of Bill Curry. He was a center in the NFL. He played for legendary coaches Vince Lombardi and then Don Shula. He first snapped the ball to Bart Starr and then Johnny Unitas. (laughs) Talk about some major clout in the NFL. He also played in the very first Super Bowl, played in the famous Broadway Joe Guarantee Super Bowl three game, and so many more, including some more championship games. To learn more about Bill and to see some of his links, including his books, you can head right over to our website. You can get there through your show notes and your podcast player or by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Bill Curry. And while you're at it, you know we got another giveaway for you. This time, Bill is gracious enough to send one lucky listener an autographed copy of his book, 10 Men You Meet in the Huddle, Lessons from a Football Life. To go to the contest page directly, you can head to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. Even if you listen to this in the, in the future, go ahead and head over there right away too, because there's generally a contest going on almost every week. But for now, let's get into the interview with Bill Curry. And uh, one of the, with that being said, I mean, that's kind of how we we'll started off there. What, what branch did your father serve in? He was in the, uh, infantry, the army infantry and he was a, um, physical training instructor and a hand to hand combat instructor at Fort Benning. Um, he was a tough son of a gun. I'm telling you. <laughs> I was a little fellow boy. He was, to this day, he's the toughest guy I ever knew. And so you, you said little fella. I mean, what, what years was he actually in World War II or well, no? The war, the war was over. Uh, he was he was to deploy to Europe. And um, 
within the next very brief, I don't know, but I was five years old uh, and um, and the war ended. So he didn't have to he didn't have to uh, deploy, but he, he was in a series of uh, he was at Fort Benning. He was at Fort Breckenridge in Kentucky, Fort Hood in Texas, uh, Fort McClellan in Alabama. And he literally wrote the manuals for the infantry for the physical training. We still got them. And I mean, they didn't have, they had such shortage of supplies that uh, in a couple of those forts, he didn't have plates on the barbells. He had to fill paint cans with concrete and hang them on the end of axles so the guys could do squats and bench presses. But he built the racks. Um, he led the exercises. And um, he, <laughs> according to him, he challenged uh, the group. Every time, is there anybody up there that thinks he can whip me? And he said, there was usually somebody that thought they could. And uh, after one guy did, he decided he wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> right, yeah. You get he what you got coming. He was, an, he was an NCAA wrestling champion. <laughs> well, your father was? No, no. My oh. dad was. He was a national uh, Olympic weightlifting champion, but he was not. The, 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 he found out later that he, he was not very smart. He had. He had not uh, checked out who was sitting in the stands that day, and one of them was a heavyweight NCAA wrestling champion. He came down there and pin pop right in front of the whole all the troops. <laughs> probably good for his ego. <laughs> right, yeah, humbling moment. And it kind of goes back to football again. So we've had many different types of episodes or I guess you could say topics on the show, and we've had one gentleman that came on talked about how football helped during World War One train men to become more physically fit because we weren't necessarily prepared for it. And all of the different military bases that had their own football teams, you know, this is before professional well, that football. Last, that lasted up through the 60s. Oh, really? Okay. The bases had teams. And then George Hallis, I know, was a big proponent of um, in the military and, and training and such over there. I don't know if that would have been during your father's time or not or before. Um, my grandpa was going to, he he himself, he thought he was born in 1930. He thought for sure, I'm going to World War II. I'm going into the war. And then, of course, thankfully, it, ha it, it ended there in 46 and right before he went in. Like that gets me thinking. He was about the same age when the war ended as you would have been around the time as the 1958 championship with one of your form or former but then future quarterbacks uh did you watch that game the 58 championship it was the um aha moment for me i had grown up loving baseball my dad was uh left when he left the service he became the uh weightlifting boxing and gymnastics coach at georgia military academy now called woodward academy and um Every day was in the weight room, and I rebelled and decided I was going to pitch for the Yankees. So I went out for a little league baseball. He said that he you know he, he was fine with that. He came to my games, um, but my goal was to pitch for the Yankees. And I don't think I ever even watched an NFL game until one day, Pop said, "Well, let's watch this championship game." And I was 16 years old. I was a a, a junior offensive center and linebacker at College Park High School on the football team, which was somewhat interesting to me, but not much. But it was it had also become apparent that I was probably not going to pitch for the Yankees. 
So I sat down to watch that game and my life was changed in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I, so one of the things I want to talk about is there's the article that I saw recently on NFL.com. And I promise you, it wasn't because of that article that I reached out. I reached out first and I saw this article. I'm like, man, there's like a sign here. And they mentioned how you had like a Forrest Gump type career. Of course, Vince Lombardi, Shula, working with both quarterbacks. And then you mentioned that game. I mean, when's the last time that you were doing something by yourself, driving or whatever, and the gravity of that career that you've had just kind of hit you? It happens uh, more often now because I have more time to think. I'm not coaching a football team. I'm not preparing for an ESPN broadcast. I'm not uh, – for a long time after I thought I had retired, I, I did a lot of public speaking, like from 2012 through 2018, roughly. The, I was on the road quite a bit, more than I had expected. And I, I felt like that was important with what's going on in our country because the great lesson of football is the huddle and the fact that it doesn't matter what color your skin is when you're in the huddle. It doesn't matter what your country of origin is. If you can contribute to the team, you're going to make the team. And that was Vince Lombardi's strongest suit. So I, I thought what I was doing was important, but I was incredibly busy uh, at the same time. That shut down when the uh, COVID-19 came along. So I've had an, an awful lot of time to think. That's a long-winded answer to your question. But m very often now I have these um, epiphanies of thinking about the key moments that moved me in one direction or another because I also wanted to be an infantry officer. I had eight years of ROTC training, and, um, and then the – Packers shocked us all by drafting me. I, that, we sure didn't expect that. I was a 212-pound offensive center at Georgia Tech. So anyhow, answer to your question is, and I promise not to take this long with future questions, but I think it's important. Um, I Things come to me a lot more often now than they, than they have previously because I just have time to walk and think and work out and things uh, come that I think are important. And I, I try to catalog them and share them if it seems appropriate. Yeah, I would say that's probably fair to say that even as we different walks of life and we, we are able to calm our minds and we're able to sit there and reflect. And I saw that you have, I'm not saying that these are the only 12 great traits, but that was one of the, on your website, I saw 12 different great traits that you speak about and there's various videos. And one of them I was going to ask you about is the uh, love and acceptance and the miracle of the huddle. Uh, you touched upon it a little bit, but can we dive a little bit more into that about a, I, I use the, the term 70 year old white dude from the South and what football taught to him about racism. Well, I'm 78 now. Uh, I'm sorry. I totally messed that up. What a 78 year old. I'm going to edit this in. What a 78 year old. <laughs> I wrote it down right here too. If I flip this hey, computer I would around. Love to be 70 again. I would love to be 70. <laughs> in fact, I was, uh, we were, we were long, another long story. I can't, you know, we don't have time for, but we were in Paris, France with Bob Hope of all things doing an NFL, um, uh, um, uh, sort of a display game and uh, a good looking 
woman walked by and Bob Hope said, oh man, to be 70 again. <laughs> well, I'm at that stage now. Except I live with a good looking woman, my, my beautiful wife. But um, I forgot your question. I'm just kind of, this coat ties back to that article that I saw and you know many of the videos about the huddle of life. I'm sorry, the huddle and what it taught you football about racism. Good. Yeah. Well, um, I had been drafted in the last round. The, the NFL had 20 rounds in those days. And my brother-in-law had called one morning and said, hello, Green Bay Packer. Well, I was a junior at Georgia Tech and I had, I didn't even know juniors were eligible to be drafted, but it was my fourth year. So I didn't even know there was such a thing as what they call futures then. And they would draft somebody in one's fourth year. And then most everybody played their fifth year at their university. And uh, I thought he was messing with me. So I hung up on him and he called me back and he said, you better get a newspaper. The Packers have drafted you in the 20th round. And Vince Lombardi had turned to his personnel man, Pat Pepler, and said, Pepler, it's two in the morning. I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. We've drafted 19 players. Do something humorous with the 20th selection. And he walked out of the room. That's Pepler's story. He loved to tell. So on that basis, uh, I had uh, been, I had never gotten a letter from the Green Bay Packers. Um, so I began to think about, and I played really hard my senior year, uh, eventually signed with the Packers, reported to the Packers, and um, had the privilege of playing in a, the Coaches All-American game and the College All-Star game and the Senior Bowl, in which I did stick my head in the huddle with one or two African-American players occasionally because they were on our teams, obviously. those. Uh, we had some good gosh. We had Gail Sayers and Roy Jefferson and people like that. We really had great players, and we had Staubach, um, who was our captain in one of the games. But I had never been on a team with an African American person. I had grown up in College Park, Georgia, attended Georgia Tech, and uh, showed up for the Green Bay Packers, unsuspecting looked around the locker room and out of the 40 at the time we had more than 40, obviously, but it was near the end of training camp when we reported from the all-star game and in the room, if you, if I had stood there and counted and I, 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 unconsciously, I guess I did, but out of the 40 players, 10 of them were African-American. Um, a lot of teams in the NFL at that time had quotas. They'd have one or two African-American players and bragged about it. Or they had no African-American players and bragged about that. Well, this was the Green Bay Packers of 1965. Nobody could beat us. Now, Lombardi had a lot of strong suits. He and I had our, our differences, and I didn't handle it well at all. But his greatest strong suit, his strongest suit was that he would not tolerate prejudice of any type. He had experienced prejudice because of the vowel at the end of his name. And he made sure that it wasn't going to infiltrate his team. So what did that mean to everybody on the team? It meant if you're here, it's because we think you can contribute. It's not because you happen to be a white guy and we're looking for just white guys. It's because you can play and we believe in you. 
So everybody knew he was respected. But I felt like with a Southern accent and with the, with the obvious knowledge that I had never teamed up with African-American people, that those big, fast guys and a bunch of those guys are in the Hall of Fame today. And it was obvious at that time that they were going to be. Well, uh, in that state of mind, I was terrified because I feared one thing. It's driven me my whole life. I fear failure. I don't want to be cut. I don't want to get beat. I don't want to get sent home. And um, I desperately wanted to make the team, and I fought to do that. I was expected to block Ray Nitschke, another Hall of Famer, a middle linebacker, and that was hilarious. Uh, He knocked me out broke my face mask, broke my nose. That was the first day. And uh, I thought, gee, this is only going to get worse. And uh, the most intimidating of all the African-American guys was Willie Davis. Willie Davis was working on his master's degree in business at the University of Chicago while being captain of the greatest football team of all time. How's that for shattering every racist stereotype coming out of the Jim Crow South? So I fought hard, tried my best, and I'm walking out of the dorm one night. And another thing, we're in Wisconsin. It's August, and it's 43 degrees, and that ain't right. I mean, everything seems strange and alien. Well, a voice came out of the darkness from behind me, Bill. I thought it was God. I just collapsed in the grass, probably. It was Willie Davis. And he said, I'd like to speak with you, young man. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to tell me to get lost. I said, "Okay," And he said, "Um, I've been watching you at practice, Bill. I really like your effort. and You've got a chance to make our team and I'm going to help you. I said, you're going to help me? He said, yeah. He said, when Nitschke's tearing your head off, and he did, and Lombardi's screaming profanity in your face and spitting in your eye, and he did. And when you don't think you can take it another second, you come find me and I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. You know what we called him? We called him Dr. Feelgood. Sure enough, when Nitschke's tearing my head off and Lombardi's screaming, I'd run fine. Number 87, I say, how you feel, old man? He said, feel good, man. Feel good. You can do it. You can do it. So what did the great man do for the terrified white kid? He didn't just help me play in the NFL for 10 years. He changed my life. It was an unexpected, undeserved, unrewarded act of kindness from a dominant leader. And that was the beginning of a three-year run where the Packers won the world title every single year. And I don't think that that was an accident. And I don't think it was just talent. I think it was that locker room with that kind of leadership. When you have that kind of leadership reaching across to the kind of person that I was when I got there. Because you see what what happened with that in that instant when he loved me unconditionally is that I was never able to look at another human being the same way I had ever again in my life. And I have not and I will not. That's what the huddle can provide. Yeah. And you mentioned um, Lombardi and the vowel on the last and or the vowel at the end of his name, just so for the younger listeners of the show, like myself, (laughs) what does that mean? Well, Europeans, Eastern Europeans, and but before them, um, the Italians, when the Italians immigrated to the U.S., 
they suffered the same kind of um, uh, prejudice, very similar kinds of prejudice that African-Americans had suffered for 400 years. Uh, there were all kind of snide Italian jokes. And um, Lombardi apparently had been told, according to one of his biographies, he had been told, you'll never get a head job because you're one of those Italians. And he was going to make sure that nobody on his team ever experienced prejudice in any form. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he had the first openly gay player in the NFL when he coached the Redskins. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but that that's I know who the guy is, and I'm not going to call his name, although he's been public. I just think Lombardi, had he was way ahead of his time when it came to understanding the human condition. Yeah, something, some, some empathy and love and compassion that, so someone like me who's only seen him, like you said, cussing somebody out on the side of sidelines in the videos, until I had an episode, I'm trying to think of which episode it was, an interview, I never realized that that was a factor in his leadership. And I know you mentioned that you kind of had different terms with him. Uh, what, what happened? I mean, there was a transition there a couple of years well, after Super Bowl one, uh, I was placed on the expansion list, and um, I blame Lombardi. It wasn't Lombardi's fault; it was my fault because I wasn't a very good player. <laughs> but I thought it was his fault. I was so immature. Well, lo and behold, I was picked up by the New New Orleans Saints, who were so excited about me, they immediately traded me to the Baltimore Colts. So I go from Bobby Dodd, my great college coach, to Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches of all time, to Don Shula one of the greatest coaches of all time. So that limits your excuses for not succeeding. Shua salvaged my career, um, and I'm in, eternally indebted to him. But being with the Baltimore Colts, two years later, we're in Super Bowl three, And I was the only player on the Colts or the Jets that had played for Lombardi and Shua. So naturally, the press descended. I was foolish. Uh, I was not foolish in praising Coach Shula for all the wonderful things that I had seen in him, but I was very critical of Coach Lombardi, and uh, and I was crude and cruel in, in doing so. And um, probably, uh, I don't know, maybe a year after that game, uh, my buddy Paul Horning, who had been a Hall of Fame player for the Packers, uh, jumped me. I mean, he, he was really upset with me. And we had been real good friends, and he was really angry at me because of what I had said about Coach Lombardi. And we got into a shouting match. And uh, he said, I'll tell you one thing. If the old man saw you, he'd treat you like his long-lost son. I said, if the old man saw me, he would treat me like dirt, the same way he has over the last two, the, the two years that I was there. Well, when you shoot your mouth off, you need to be really careful because <laughs> there's, there's some sort of force – um, some sort of karma that gets even some quicker more often than not so quick because it wasn't a month later I was walking up a very narrow staircase at the president's prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. and guess who's coming down the other way? No escape. It's Vince Lombardi. Greeted me like his long lost son made me feel about an inch high. He said, Bill, maybe you and I need to talk. And I said, yes, sir, we do. 
Well, it wasn't long until he was on his deathbed with um, colon cancer. And another teammate to whom I am eternally indebted, Bob Long, called me. I was in Washington working for the Players Association. And he calls me one day and he said, we're going to go see Coach Lombardi. We're going to Georgetown Hospital. We're going to go by the church, light a candle for him. Bob's Catholic. I was, I'm not. And we're going to go see Coach. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare walk in that room. I wouldn't be allowed in. That's one thing. But second, I just, I, I don't know what I would say. I'm, I feel so terrible. He said, I know where you are. And if I have to drag your big, you know what, out of the room, I will. But you be, I'm going to be at your hotel in 15 minutes. And you're going to go with me to see Coach Lombardi. So we get off the elevator and there stands the one person that I did not, definitely did not want to see on earth. And that's Marie Lombardi, Vince's beautiful wife, who had always treated my Carolyn and me as if we were hers. She embraced me, which made me, again, feel about that high. She was standing with Sonny Jurgensen. She looks at me and says, she nods, she says, come on, let's go see. I remember, I'll never forget she called him Vin. I had never heard her call him Vin, the diminutive of his name before. So we walk in the room, and I'm shaking like a leaf. His right arm was um, full of IVs, so I took his left hand, and I stumbled and trying to fight back tears I said coach uh, I said some things I shouldn't have said and I came here today to apologize and I came here to tell you that you've meant a lot to my life he didn't pause his grip was firm he looked me straight in the eye with those steely eyes of his his voice was strong his body was emaciated but that presence was the same as it had always been and his response was, you can mean a lot to my life if you'll pray for me. And I promised that I would. And I had to leave the room. So what had that great man done for the terrified kid from College Park? He had forgiven me when I least deserved it. So those priorities of his that we used to joke about, your religion, your family, the Green Bay Packers that he used to hammer all the time, those were real. And in his moment of truth, he lived out his priorities. And I pray to God that I am half the man that he was. Um, well, in the end, he lived out his priorities when it, when it was the most demanding. And um, to have been in the presence of his greatness in those moments. I mean, what can I when I see Bob Long, I, I just have to sit him down and say that there's nothing I can do or say or give you to make you understand how deeply, eternally indebted I am to you. He said, well, I just thought it was something you needed to do, big boy. I said, oh, you were right. Yeah, definitely. And I think everybody has those types of moments in their lives where someone comes along to help them out. And you mentioned Shula. He helped save your career, or however you worded it. He did. He gave me so many chances. What was the difference i don't know coaching style or mentorship between coach lombardi and coach shula that you personally were able to accept 
Well, first of all, I wish I had been a grown-up when I played for Coach Lombardi. I was a baby. Uh, I, I wasn't mature, and um, I would love to have played for him later in my career. And by the time I got to Shula, I was a little older. Um, he wanted me to play on special teams and play middle linebacker because I had played both ways at Georgia Tech. And uh, believe it or not, my middle linebacker coach, our defensive coordinator, was a guy named Chuck Noel, uh, who was not bad himself. So if you've got those coaches, it's hard to screw that up. But I did. Uh, I, wasn't, I, I was just good enough to get us beat as a middle linebacker. And so I thought, well, Shula will cut me now. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to put you back where you belong at center and get some football out of you. And I played a, a, eight more years. He was just – if he ever decided that he believed in you, he would never give up on you. And so I'm not saying that Lombardi didn't have that feature, but I didn't get to experience that. I didn't earn that. You had to, you had to earn that with those guys. I did not with the one guy and maybe the second guy. There was something he saw that other people couldn't see. I couldn't even see it in myself. But the great things that happened in my career for, for my productivity happened after Shula demonstrated that kind of belief in me. Yeah, and speaking of belief, and you, you like you said, you can't give enough to thank for what Shula did for your career. How did it? So in 72, you know, we all know what the 72 season was for the Dolphins. Being that he was your great mentor, but you yet your team lost to him twice. Like, like what kind of emotions went through your mind during that year watching that happen on the other side of the fence? Well, I wasn't surprised. I mean, the, the year, the only thing anybody remembers about our 68 Colt team is that, that we lost to the Jets. But our record going into the Super Bowl was 15 and one. We had lost to Cleveland early in the year, and we just beaten them 34 to nothing in their stadium. So I mean, he he did that. A bunch. He had great teams over and over and over. And um, he, you ask about the difference between Shula and Lombardi. Shula's training camps were twice as hard as Lombardi's. Physically demanding pads. Nick Bonacani was a very good friend of mine. God rest his soul. But Nick called me after about a week with Shula. He said, this guy's crazy. I said, yeah, and guess what? You guys are going to win. Do you want to do that or not? Suck it up. And, and, and then Nick ends up whooping us several times along with Coach Shula, um, including those two in, in 1972. But the answer to your question about how did I feel in 72, I sure wasn't happy for my old coach. I was sick. Because Don McCafferty, our coach, got fired. And uh, I felt like it was our fault. I, fe I felt like it was the players' fault. We got, we got Mac fired because we didn't, we didn't do our jobs. Yeah, I, I, one reason why I brought that up was because after and with your fight with Mr. John Mackey and, and moving on forward with the NFLPA, nowadays players, they're not with the same team you know, year in, year out, like they were more in, in previous years. And I just, I, I just wonder to what extent nowadays versus back then, I don't want to say the word loyalty, that's a bad word, but the relationship that a player may have with their coach versus back then thinking to nowadays with Belichick and Brady, they were together so long now, boom, he's down in Tampa Bay. How I just, just, just a different perspective from a fan view versus a player's view. I'm not sure if that 
rambling made sense to you as well. <laughs> no, it does. It makes sense. Um, personal loyalty, especially for a violent competitor and the NFL is made up of a bunch of immature guys that have a little physical talent, in some cases, great physical talent. Um, but all of us, every single one of us has the capacity to give our heart and soul to a concept, a team. And there are special kinds of motivators that can bring that out of us. And there are others that just can't. And uh, I think there is a huge difference. Obviously, if an offensive line has been playing together eight years and the same guys are lining up every Sunday, yes, you have an advantage. There's a kinship and a sense of community. And you drink beer together on Friday afternoons and yuck it up. And your wives, you go out to dinner together and you, and you have this kinship. But that those things can can blend very quickly where the motivation, where somebody like Belichick gets in there. And, I mean, Belichick has had a very, um, how shall I say, a movable feast. I mean, he's had such variety amongst players, and yet the results have been almost identical every year. So what is it about Bill that does that? No, nobody probably knows but Bill. But he can get those guys to do what you have to do to win in the NFL, which is this. Number one, you got to execute. You got to be really good at what you do, and you got to know what your job is. But number two, when it gets down in the fourth quarter and everybody wants to quit, and tell me, let me let me tell you, everybody wants to quit. Everybody wants to die when you when you're in Miami and it's 114 on that turf. Nobody wants to be out there in the two minute drill in the, at the end of the fourth quarter, and you played your 23rd football game in a row, and you hadn't missed a play. All you want to do is die. You want to go home. But you don't. So what do the great teams have? What they have, what those Dolphins had, and what we had had, is that every guy refuses to let the other guy down. Refuses. You can't beat us. We're not going to let you. And that's what that's what great teams have that the others don't. I've been on both kinds. Yeah, speaking of that, great teams and that, that refusal to lose – but then when you've when you're in the face of adversity such as what you dealt with in Super Bowl 3 what what did coach Shula say whether it was a locker room or maybe the training camp like, what was the the motivating factor moving into the next years it wasn't what coach Shula said it was it was uh, our owner Carol Rosenblum who um and I'm biased about Mr. Rosenblum because he was great to me and he was great to a lot of us Anybody that produced for Mr. Rosenblum got the same kind of loyalty that we got from Shula. But uh, he stood up with Coach Shula, the two of them, in front of our team the first day of the 1969 training camp and said, men, I've told you this before, but I'm going to make this a reinforced message. I'm not here for anything other than to win the Super Bowl. That's the only reason I'm here. And and I'll never forget these words. And he said, I've already fired one coach that won two world championships for me. So we're all sitting there trying to oh, weave you back. That's who that was, who ironically, guess who was on the other sideline in Super Bowl three. There are all kind of ironies here. 
But that was the speech. To, I mean, it wasn't Shula's place to say anything because the owner had countermanded the beginning. And we had an up and down year. I think our record was eight, five and one, something like that. But um, it was the NFL is a tough place and you got very demanding owners. And they're going to give you their heart and soul and they're going to pay you well as long as you do what you're supposed to, what you promised, what you've pledged to do. And if you don't, they're going to get rid of you. Yeah, you mentioned how there was a lot of uh, ironies and coaches and players and interrelations of how everything worked. It reminds me of the book that I read by a mutual friend of ours, the the game, the um, geez, almighty Upton Bell's book at the beginning, at the creation. And uh, just reading through there, I was like, I can't believe this was a previous coach for here. And he was a quarterback there and he was a coach. I'm like, there's so much wrapped around the teams right there. And Again, yeah. going back to your Forrest Gump life that the NFL website said. Uh, what, what, what's a good story about Upton Bell that you can give me? I don't think Upton was aware because he was at training camp all the time. And it was if it was a, a boring, br- brutal day and you didn't have anybody to talk to, uh, meaning teammates. I mean, if you didn't have a, a, me- a meeting with an assistant coach or somebody – it was great fun to go uh, sit and um, listen to Upton Bell, who had on Weijins and no socks and Bermuda shorts. And he had the audacity to sit there and put his leg up on his desk and pontificate. And if you could get him started telling stories about his dad, Burt Bell, I mean, everybody in the world knows who Burt Bell was, is. Um, but I don't have any specific funny stories because – he he wisely, uh, when it was time for you to get up and go to your next meeting, he would let you know, okay, it's time for you to go. And I mean, he didn't get buddy buddy with us, and that was really smart. I thought uh, he's a, he's a lot more um, accessible to me now than he was when I was a player. Although he was he was pleasant, he was fun, and he was funny. And I always thought it was. Um, I thought he had a heck of a nerve to walk around with Weijins and Bermudas when we were dying. <laughs> Truly, was taking us on the field twice a day, but we all liked him a lot. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, and the listeners of the show know too. I, I give a lot of credit to him for pushing me from solo episodes to interviews. I can remember the conversation where I was at with him. When after he reached out to me, I was at there's a parking lot over where I live next to a subway and there's a hotel. And I just sat there listening to this, to me, some stranger talk because I had no idea who an Upton Bell, what does an Upton Bell even mean? And then as I did more research and realized, holy moly, this is Burt Bell's son. And then I re- read the book. I'm like, wow, yes, he really was there at the, the, the creation and the present there. And uh, that brings me to one of our questions. We always ask the guests of the show. I'm going to give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean. Like I said, there's that back to the future theme. You can go back and point in any time because you have a, you've played. Let's go to your career. You can go to one defensive huddle that's on the other side of the line. So you can listen to what they're saying. What defensive huddle for a play in your career you're going to go to? Is this during a game? Yes. Woo, that's a good. No, I'm not going to tell you it has to be during the game. If there was a good practice moment, we can go to a practice moment as well. A defensive huddle. As in you're the center and you're either 
either a moment where, because like your offensive huddles over here on one side of the ball, you want to know what the other guys are thinking on the other side, the other, the defensive huddle. It'd be the Los Angeles Rams when they had Lamar Lundy and Roger Brown and Merlin Olson and Deacon Jones. When those four guys, when you broke the huddle and got to the, came to the line of scrimmage, I don't care who you are. I don't care how tough you are or how many games you've won or who you've whooped. You look across there, you had just a little moment, a little tremor. Uh-oh. <laughs> and um, I would love to have been in that huddle to hear what they said. Yeah, I heard uh, one story of when Joe Montana, was it on the catch the drive? Something about where he looked in the stands and he goes, oh, hey, there's Bill Murray or some some other famous actor. Just That's a huddle that one of my answers was he just wanted to be there for just how Joe Cool that guy was. And then, of course, we bring up Unitas. And that must have been an interesting character to be around during a huddle. And that brings me to normally the last question. I always ask the listeners or the guests to give me some last words of wisdom. And for you, I'm going to kind of tailor that a little bit to Johnny use famous words that you talk about talks cheap. Let's go play. Can you correlate that into whatever you want? I'm going to leave the open forum for you for a listener of this show and talk, talk to them about talks cheap. Let's go play. Well, the thing you're referring to, Arnie, is what Unitas used to say every Sunday, every single Sunday. Our defensive captain, who was Freddie Miller, would give an impassioned pitch. We got to go out and we got to keep our pads down, keep our heads up and run to the football and all that and, and get getting the guys fired up. And John would be standing over next to the door in Old Memorial Stadium. You had to go out through a tunnel and then you had to go out through the Orioles dugouts. So you actually had to go out with care so you didn't slip and fall down. But he's standing there with his legs crossed, leaning back against the door. And then Freddie would look, turn and we would all look and he'd say, hey, okay, John, you want to say anything? Talk's cheap. Let's go play. End of speech. Turn, walked out the door. We would have followed him into hell. And back. But the story really doesn't stop there for me. A lot of people ask me with this Forrest Gump shtick that I seem to have uh, been tabbed with, that I was at a lot of places with a lot of famous people. And I was. What is the biggest moment? What's the most momentous feeling? And it was not just one situation. It was... Many times when the offense won the toss, we were introduced at Memorial Stadium, which was being called the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. 63,000, but the noise, the sounds that they could generate were like jet engines and the decibel level was being measured by NASA because it was not like anything else that anybody else could come close to, honestly. First player introduced would be the offensive center, which would be me. From Georgia Tech, number 50, Bill Curry. And I'd trot out to the middle of the field to polite applause and go over and set the huddle in front of our bench. 
And then there'd be nine more introductions. It's my teammates would jog out to the middle of the field and up to varying levels of applause. And then the announcer, <laughs> I can't help it. I get emotional just telling this. The announcer, the PA man would say, and at quarterback from the University of Louisville, number 19, and that would be the last thing that you would hear. The roar was literally indescribable. And that old dude would waddle out to the middle of the field and over to the huddle, stick his head in the huddle and blinking at that that crooked smile of his. And um, the game was over. And the opponents weren't aware that the game was over, but nobody was going to beat us in that stadium ever. It was almost impossible to measure the emotion and the uh, devotion to one another that was generated simply by those simple actions and the response of the community joining with us, those dock workers from Dundalk. And our salaries were about the same as theirs in those days. So we had a kinship that can't be kindled anymore, I don't think. That's the feeling that I'd love to relive a time or two. Told you so. The NFL article saying his football life was sort of like a Forrest Gump movie. Well, that came to fruition in this interview, even though we were not able to get to everything. I mean, Bill was there in so many of the great moments when the NFL was at that stage where it was transforming into what it is now, the most popular professional football league in America. And we didn't even get into his coaching career or many of the other stories that he has for us. So I think maybe we'll have to have him back on the show sometime. And again, to learn more about Bill, you can head over onto the website at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Bill Curry. And while you're at it, like I said at the beginning, Bill is gracious enough to give one lucky listener an autographed copy of his book, 10 Men You Meet in the Huddle, Lessons from a Football Life. To sign up for the contest and get yourself in there, you can head to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. And again, even if you're listening to this in the future, sometime, flipping on my DeLorean, 88 mile an hour, and all that other kind of thing, there very well could be another contest on there for you. So head there, regardless of the time you're listening. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.